Welcome to Beyond the Show, the podcast home of all things Cannabis Conference. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of the Cannabis Group at GIE Media. We are well underway with Cannabis Conference planning. You're seeing speakers being announced left and right over at CannabisConference.com, and those speakers will be joining us on the show in the coming weeks and months, including on today's episode. My guest this week is Jared Lodeholt, partner at Ice Miller's Public Affairs Group. Jared previously served as the head of Credit Karma's Washington, D.C. office as its first director of legislative and regulatory affairs, where he managed the company's government relations function. In 2016, Jared co-founded a full-service public affairs firm specializing in federal and state government relations, public affairs, strategic communications, and issue and electoral campaigns. As principal of the firm, he developed and executed legislative, regulatory, and procurement strategies for a diverse range of commercial, governmental, and nonprofit clients. And prior to the creation of his public affairs firm, Jared functioned as policy, compliance, and product counsel for Solar City and Tesla. At Cannabis Conference 2022, he'll be speaking on the panel, Federal Cannabis Legalization in the United States. What will it mean? And that's what we talked about all while zooming into the nuances of Washington, D.C.'s particularly insulated brand of politics. Please enjoy my conversation with Jared Lodeholt. Good morning, Jared, and thanks so much for joining the show this week. Very glad to get a chance to talk with you about federal cannabis legalization in the United States and and what it will mean for businesses, uh, which you'll be expounding on in August at Cannabis Conference. Um, so we're just going to sort of tee up that conversation for later this summer. You know, I wanted to begin with um, the April 1st U.S. House vote on the Moore Act, which, again, was uh, a repeat of recent history. The U.S. House passed the Moore Act uh, with a handful of amendments. And of course, it was cause for celebration. I know a lot of people were, were very happy about that. Could you maybe place that in context and uh maybe react to that vote yourself. Um, I mean, we've been through the House vote before and and the Senate awaits, uh, for better or worse. What does the House vote mean um, on the Moore Act uh, this month? I think it means that House Democrats have a marker. I think the best way to understand legislation like that, that you see pass and then you see nothing happen when it goes to the Senate is, that is House Democrats, that's their bill. Right. And just like I think House Republicans have the beginnings of a bill in the state's Mm -hmm. reform act, because I don't I don't think there's real consensus in the House Republican caucus around cannabis, to be completely honest. Um, It's a marker that I think at some point and I think that point is maybe next Congress, perhaps um, you'll have three vehicles. You'll have. The Moore Act, which I think is the House Democratic vehicle, the States Reform Act, which I think will eventually be, I think it'll be bipartisan. I actually think you're going to have some Democrats sign on to that. Um, and, and then you'll have the Schumer Wyden Booker bill, which it's my understanding will be proposed. It'll go from discussion draft to bill the end of this month. Um, it's again, another marker. And one would hope Right. One would hope that the future of federal cannabis legalization is centered around how you get some love child of these three bills that can get 60 votes and 
passed in a Republican-led House, because I think Democrats very likely lose the House this fall. Obviously, I'm, I'm a Democrat, so I personally hope that that's not true. But, you know, I, th- I think there's, there's strong indications that that might be the case. So um, and then I think the question is, well, does that vehicle need to look more like the States Reform Act than the Moore Act? So I think there are a lot of large questions. And I think the immediate implications are limited in that what we saw with the Moore Act is a mark. And the more, this is not the first time that 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 piece of legislation or something similar to it has passed. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly on some level, momentum is picking up. As you mentioned, we've got three vehicles in front of us. And it wasn't too long ago that we didn't have any vehicles in front of us. Right. Um, I know that I feel this question all the time. You know, when are we going to legalize cannabis? And there's, you know, everyone's sort of looking at the clock and, and hoping for it to happen tomorrow. That tends to breed optimism when a vote like like the April 1st House vote happens. People get very excited and it seems like uh, there may be progress, especially given the political makeup of Congress, at least here in, in 2022. Um I suppose, what role does that optimism play in this conversation? Is it overweighted? Is it unfounded? Uh, can you sort of maybe elaborate on that? You know, I think it's misplaced. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's misplaced because it assumes that there is anything close to a consensus that gets to 60 votes. Uh, and there is not. And I don't matter. I'll take it a step further. There is not a piece of legislation that gets 50 Senate Democratic votes today. And I know that that would not be. um, Some Democrats, I think, would publicly disagree, but privately, they know it to be true because you have lots of moderate Democrats who in the Senate who are not completely on board with this push. Um, And there's a missing piece. We've talked a lot about Congress. We've not talked about the Biden White House, because if you saw um, Kate Benger's response to the Moore Act passing yesterday, um, it was not, you know, it wasn't. It, it it indicated what I think we should we should be okay admitting now, which is this is not a priority for this administration, um, and I think we should just admit that. Right. Because obviously, look, inflation's a priority. Um, This China competitiveness kind of R&D bill, America competes and supply chain. I mean, there are other things that this White House is focused on. And I'm just not I'm not convinced that cannabis is one of them. It's not to say they don't care about it, but I just think you can't boil the ocean. I think every administration has. And there's Ukraine. Right. And so I think they have attention focused elsewhere. And so. Look, if, if there were a White House that had very clear views on cannabis and was steering Congress in a direction, I think you may see the pop, the, the dynamics differ a bit, but you don't, right? And so what has filled that vacuum is some, you know, inertia to some extent. You've had some first movers, and then you did that. And what you get out of that is markers. You get messaging bills that essentially say, these are the things that I think matter to me and the people who I'm listening to. And I think that's an important part of the conversation, because I think if you look at the Booker Wyden um, Schumer bill, a lot of what you see from, I'd say, kind of the criminal justice reform 
space, you see their fingerprints all over it, less so on the cannabis operator side, right? Um, whereas I think the large MSOs, probably a lot of their fingerprints are on the Nancy Mace bill, the States Reform Act. Um, I think a lot of the voices of cannabis operators are not really breaking through. And I think there are political reasons for that, um, but they're not. And so what you see on the left is a bill that is very, very much in response to some of your more vocal criminal justice oriented folks. And there are different interest groups that think that are playing into this conversation in Washington. And it's always important to note which audiences resonate with which, with which members. And I think ultimately that's the legislation you, you see. Uh, and I think that's why you see the three vehicles that look the way they do. So I think the focus should still be for operators in the states. I still think that that is where the best and worst, but the policy is actually happening. And the attention on Washington is honestly, I think, misplaced, much like the optimism is misplaced. Um, And I think, unfortunately, the reporting when these bills pass is not always good because most people understand headlines. They're like, oh, it passed. Something's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, and it's not going to happen for the dynamics that um, uh, I, I laid out. And I think we'll probably drill down a bit more into those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly prioritization, uh, I think, is, is a point well taken there in, in not only the Biden White House, but but in Congress in, in general. Um, and I know that that's that's a um, maybe a token talking point of of House Republicans, at least in, in the vote a couple of weeks ago or last week, rather. That um, you know, there are other issues here. Why are we debating this? Um, and yet there are three vehicles, and there have been debates so far. And I'm curious, um, what do you see as some of the the more granular policy aspects of these bills that are rising to the top? Um, we mentioned criminal justice. There's certainly um, uh, and, and social equity and, and diversity grant funding is, is enshrouded in some of these bills. There's also the federal tax issue and, and a handful of other things, certainly. Are there um, policies being advanced that you think will will stick that are helpful to the industry? Um, yeah. Hopefully won't get swept away in debate. Now, now, one thing we didn't talk about and haven't talked about is um, banking in the SAFE Act, which I'd yeah. actually say is the fourth vehicle. I actually think the SAFE Act is a proxy for the fight that we're seeing. And it tells you a lot about why the other three vehicles don't get traction and why the SAFE Act did. So maybe we'll talk about the SAFE Act. Mm-hmm. In terms of kind of the policy elements that stick out that I think hopefully are in um, what, I, like I said, the love child bill, that is the, the combination of the three. I think you, if you start with Congresswoman Mace's bill, I think the tax rate is probably better than the others. And obviously... Here's the concern. If the tax rate is too high, then you'll keep the black and gray markets open, right? Which makes it harder for entrepreneurs who want to enter this market legally to actually be profitable. So I think she gets that right. I think one of the other things that she gets right is, look, you've got states who put a lot of time, effort, energy, and money into their own regulatory regimes. I don't think we should displace those on day one. 
Um, I do think, though, which I don't think is in her bill or any of the other ones is I think there should be some minimum standards, though, for state regular state framework. So, for example, there's some states that are passing medical marijuana, um, medical cannabis legislation completely devoid of any equity kind of provisions. Um, States should not be left to their own devices without any federal oversight, because I think you'll get really good proposals in some states and really awful ones in others. And I just don't think you should leave state legislatures to their own devices on a subject like this. I think there are other issues that completely make sense for states to regulate. This is not one of them. This is a matter of interstate commerce. So I think as a, as because of interstate commerce, I think there's some minimum standards. I would hope that some kind of federal legislation speaks to that um, of what should be in it. Um, I think the MORE Act and the CAOA, the Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act, uh, which is the Booker, Booker, Wyden, Schumer, I think they get the equity and the expungement and the criminal justice provisions right. Um, I think they're the community reinvestment aspects that I think are great. I will point attention to this, though. Um, the Minority Cannabis Business Association has, I think, written extensively about how these state equity provisions have failed. My hope is that every person writing one of those bills is calling Amber Littlejohn every day and asking her what the social equity provisions in these bills should look like. You've got to have groups like that at the table in a significant way to drive equity. Because any federal legalization scheme that does not comprehensively address the cost of the war on drugs, in addition to creating a marketplace where people can actually compete, where notably funding is available on the front end of the process for applicants. What often happens is social equity programs, oh, great, we're going to make it incredibly expensive and difficult to get a license. And you can only access you know, financial support and so forth after the fact, after you've already gotten a license. Well, it costs, you know, a few hundred, you know, it, it could cost 20, 30, 40, 50, six figures, depending on the state to get the license. You know, my firm does, we do this work, right? So I know exactly how much it costs. It's not free to hire the help you need to do and compete with other people who will hire a law firm. So I think front end dollars and support for people navigating the licensing process is necessary. And I think that's one of the places where these equity provisions are falling short. So I think you need equity provisions that make sense, that are rooted in the reality of entrepreneurs of color actually pursuing these licenses and actually opening these businesses in a meaningful way, right? I think that more and CAOA are right directionally, right? I also think there's this entire world that of, of research and development around cannabis and higher education that I think is kind of, we don't talk enough about that because like any other consumer product, there are pretty significant dollars that go into research around all of these things. And when we talk about equity, what I have, and I, and I think this CAOA alluded to, and I'm not sure if that more does, but I hope any final legislation does include it, is our historically Black colleges and universities, particularly our land-grant universities, these are agricultural institutions. 
These are these are institutions that are on the front lines of R&D. But more importantly, they have a direct line to to minority, particularly black farmers in this country who are and have been suffering literally since emancipation. If we're going to open this marketplace up, that aspect of cultivation and research and science needs to be front and center. And I think the CAOA kind of starts to get there. So there are lots of pieces. And as someone who worked in Congress, I think ultimately what you need are people who are committed to finding what works, to your point, pulling the pieces from the various pieces of legislation that makes sense, and who are more interested in getting a deal done than checking every box that advocacy group X asks for. Because Mm -hmm. this is math. What gets you to 60? And from the vehicles we have, I don't think, I think we're far more interested in like putting down the ideological markers at this point than we are actual legislating. Um, but I do think that the markers themselves have provisions in them that should be a part of what could be a bipartisan um, agreement. On it. But again, you got to actually have consensus somewhere within your two caucuses to get there. And we don't have that. Yeah, I think, I mean, those are a lot of really good threads there. Um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Amber Littlejohn's work. Uh, of course, very excited to have her at Cannabis Conference as well this year. And just the um, the idea of sort of fair market competition that is really needed and that the federal government has some tools to, or could set some tools in place to, um, to set that up and, and help it along. That sort of opens the door, in my mind at least, to, again, the Safe Banking Act and access yeah. to capital yeah. and, uh, and funding that isn't just grant funding, but is, is right. again, fair market fundraising. Um, right. Could you maybe elaborate on, on that, Bill? I know it's, oh, it's taken wow. a few forms. <laughs> it's taken yeah. a few forms. Yeah. It's gotten some support. It does feel like either a proxy or a, uh, a first step. Um, do you see right. that as maybe the, the fight to focus on, so to speak? Yes, that mm-hmm. is the immediate priority. That should be the immediate priority and focus. Um, and as things stand, it was included in the America Competes Act that should be a part of a conference process soon as a part of the broader, what is now being called the Bipartisan Innovation Act. Um, I got my start on this issue from a policy perspective as a staff from the Financial Services Committee working on what at then we called it marijuana banking bill with Congressman Ed Perlmutter, who deserves tremendous credit for his leadership over the years on this issue. He deserves tremendous credit here. Um, And I think that um, he's done a phenomenal job of keeping this issue front and center because the reality is people are being robbed. This is a public safety issue. This is an equity issue. Because if you look at the cannabis operators that have the thinnest margins, who can least afford a bank partnership walking away, who can least afford the exorbitant fees that have to be charged as a part of the compliance that goes into banking, anything that touches cannabis. It's your smallest operators that are bearing that cost. They're also the ones who are going to be the least, the most vulnerable to some of the public safety risks which makes the politics and the rhetoric around 
the SAFE Act all the more baffling and disappointing. It's baffling to people who I think don't follow this as much, but very disappointing to people like me who have. Because the loudest voices you see opposed to it are Senator Booker, Schumer, and Wyden, the sponsors of the CAOA. And the rationale that is being offered is that, you know, this opens things up to the big banks and we're only helping them and we're only helping people who are already well financed. Completely false. That is patently false because the largest cannabis operators are well financed already. They can pay the banking fees every month. And if they lose a bank relationship, they'll find another one because they're massive companies. Furthermore, if you look at which financial institutions are playing in this space, the large Wall Street banks aren't there. They don't, this, they don't do this. If anything, if they find out you are connected to the industry, you may lose your account. So the idea that this will open things up to Wall Street is completely false. Um, I think if anything, they could do it now if they chose to, they choose not to. So I don't think that they are the largest, like they're not out here asking for SAFAC in the way that community banks are and credit unions are because they're the ones who actually are banking this and they're the ones who want the kind of clarity that the SAFAC needs. I have represented the National Bankers Association. I used to, I don't anymore. Association of Community Banks, Minority-Owned Banks. They desperately wanted the SAFAC and they still want it. And they want it because They want to be able to bank the communities that paid the price for the war on drugs, just like everybody else. And so the fact that we're seeing this opposition coming from corners of the Senate that you would think are are traditionally going to be aligned with some of these community bank interests are problematic. But the reality is what they're concerned about is that if attention is focused on safe, it won't be on their bill. Right. And. What people don't see outside of Washington is how much ownership, I think, is to put it charitably, members of Congress have around their legislation. And when they decide to stake their claim on an issue, they kind of want to crowd out the space and they want the attention on their work. And they feel like anything that takes attention from their work is harmful. And therefore, they'll say things about other pieces of legislation that aren't true to put a focus on theirs. And so I think that, again, misplaced, I mean, just really bad politics around the safe fact, really only coming from a small corner of the Senate Democratic Caucus. Unfortunately, one of them is the majority leader, and I think that's a problem, right? And so my hope is, my hope is that they will drop their opposition and let it go through on conference, and that it will pass. Because once it does, absolutely people will turn their focus to these other vehicles. But we have an immediate need in the industry right now that it's taken far too long for this to be a reality. And this thing has passed the House, what, seven times, six or seven times. Um, And so there's really no good reason for this not to be long. Um, And quite frankly, it is the logical extension of how we bank cannabis now, which is the Department of Justice has essentially said, or at least is what they demonstrated, look, if it's legal in your state, you can, we're not going, we're not going to seize your, your, your goods, right? Which if you're a banking institution, 
some of them are already doing this work. There's guidance to that effect. But if there was further clarity that I think the SAFE Act would provide, then I think more, far more people would want to get in this industry. And far more, and I think there's so many iterations of financial services that you would see kind of flow from this. As an example, you would see far more banks being interested in bonds, right? Like this is a revenue stream for government to build things and invest in people and invest in our communities. Imagine if the tax revenue generated from cannabis could be um, could back bonds, green bonds, right? And so state treasurers. I think have a very real interest in seeing this done. Cities, just the same, because in many cases they can have a local tax as well, the same way we have local taxes on other goods and services. So again, I think it's a proxy fight and it shows us that they're real fissures um, within these caucuses that quite frankly aren't rooted in the reality of cannabis operators, but instead kind of beltway politics that really, really need to go away. Yeah, um, I mean, all really important points there. And, and you, you use the phrase immediate need uh, as you were talking there. And I think it's, it's a good phrase, you know, given the razor thin margins of a lot of small businesses from state to state, the sense of urgency is, is pretty clear, I think. Um, a lot of what we're talking about here is, um, is sort of that classic Washington political, very insular environment. So I'm, I guess I'm wondering, we're speaking here in April 2022, we'll get together again in August out in, in Vegas for the show. What can cannabis operators maybe do this year when they're not busy working on their business and, and trying to manage things? Are there, I don't know, advocacy tools at their disposal or things that they might want to get involved with this summer that could be helpful to, to push this conversation along? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think that when we see the conference committee come together for the Ameri- the Bipartisan Innovation Act, which I would imagine most cannabis operators are not paying attention to, um, let's see who's on that conference committee. Um, and I think there's a very real desire and need to push the leadership of all four, kind of the four corners is how it's described in Washington. So your speaker, your minority leader, your uh, majority and minority leader in the Senate to get this done. Um, and so I think that's working through the existing organizations that are doing this work in Washington. But also, like, look, blow up, blow up someone's office. Like if you if you are a cannabis operator and let's say, a, you know, I'll pick a state like New York. Well, look, I hope that there are New York based organizations that are actively pushing your senators and your congressional delegations to make this happen. Because it's easy for elected officials to dismiss folks like me, right? I'm in Washington. I'm, you know, I'm, you're always, you always see me. So it's easy to say, oh, he'll, Jared will be here tomorrow, right? No matter what happens. But you have, you have entrepreneurs in your states, they don't ignore y'all, right? Because you can talk to local press. Because I think there's another thing. It's like, look, you have local press. Those elected officials in Washington read the local papers. Because the local papers are where voters get their information, the people who vote. And if they're seeing headlines about 
We don't understand why Senator so-and-so is not with us on this. They'll be forced to engage. And so I think that there's a, there's a desire, I feel like, sometimes you go straight to D.C. It's like we skip all of the local players and we're going to I'm going to go to Senator so-and-so's office. And it's literally the least effective thing you can do. Right. The most effective thing you can do is make a stink in your local press about why this person is not doing the things you need them to do. And I'll be candid. I mean, I think on the banking issue, I mean, people are kill, people are dying. Like you have people who are being robbed because people think that they're sitting on lots of cash because sometimes they are. They're not the most like they're sitting ducks. And imagine headlines that say, you know, Senator or Congressman X is standing in the way of things that put us in danger. They don't want that headline. Um, And I think the more you can pull the politics out of Washington, the better. Because once you get into Washington, all the Washington voices are there. And they already had pretty established constituencies within the staffs of these offices and these committees and these members. It's almost like, you know, an alternative universe when people fly into to, to National Airport and go to work on the Hill. It's like all the local dynamics are back in the district. I think those district dynamics need to be heightened. And I think the other piece of it is this. Again, I think... The, the, the SAFE Act is a great example. You have state treasurers who would love to find ways to securitize those tax revenues if they would have financial institutions that would be willing to underwrite the bonds. But they don't because there's no SAFE Act, right? And so we need more non-traditional players speaking up about why this is needed. We need state treasurers speaking up and directly going to their senators. We need governors in these states saying, look, this would help us if you got this done. Oh, by the way, we have our own cannabis framework. We want to keep it intact. You need to do X to make sure that if federal if there's federal legislation down the line, that you're not displacing the hard work that we put in to stand this industry up in our state, right? Like there are local players. And I feel like if you're an operator, you can more easily get to those local folks in your local press than you can to move folks in Washington. And I think if I could focus, I think our substantive attention should be on these state legislatures and how we operate these state regulatory regimes are passing them in these states. Um, and then I think if we're going to focus on Washington, it needs to be on banking because these large vehicles, it's going to take time. And should there be a shift in leadership in 22, which there very likely will be, that's a very different conversation than the one we're having now, because there is no Senate Republican vehicle for uh, cannabis. If you notice, only a House Republican vehicle. And I don't know where Senate Republicans are on this in a meaningful way, but they may be in leadership. And if they are and there's no vehicle, guess what happens? Probably no progress. So, you know, again, I think that there are there are a lot of gaps that I think we have to fill in this federal space. Absolutely. Well, it's certainly uh, this conversation, I think, has been a really helpful frame for this fairly complicated conversation, um, and one that's, that's, like we said, strapped to a, a fast-moving clock here in 2022. And 
and certainly beyond. Um, but Jared, it's, it's been fantastic getting a chance to talk to you and just glean some insights into how to think about this rather than just gawking at uh, really overly optimistic headlines every couple of weeks. Um, so very much looking forward to having you out at the show in August at Cannabis Conference 2022. And maybe by then, uh, you know, we can continue this conversation and, and have maybe some, some more things to talk about, surely. Um, but in the meantime, thank you so much for your time, Jared. It was great. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap on another episode of Beyond the Show. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jared Lodeholt of Ice Miller's Public Affairs Group. I know I did, and I'm looking forward to picking up that conversation about federal cannabis legalization later this year at Cannabis Conference 2022. That'll be out in Vegas, of course, uh, August 23rd to the 25th. You can learn more about the show at CannabisConference.com, including the full three-day schedule of educational sessions, including the session that we talked about here on federal cannabis legalization. Check out our growing roster of speakers, exhibitors. Learn more about the logistics and the, the hotel aspects of the show. We'll be at the Paris right on the Strip where we were in 2021. and very excited to get back there this August. Anyway, the cannabis legalization conversation, when we're talking about it from a federal level, it's always very interesting. It's always rife with a bit of optimism, as we talked about in this interview, a bit of pessimism. It's kind of baked into uh, just the years and years this conversation has been going on. But nonetheless, it's super important. It's uh, maybe not an inevitability, but it's just about an inevitability that some federal action will be taken and businesses do need to prepare. So this conversation kind of teed up that broader set of implications for licensed businesses that we'll be getting into at the show. Make sure you sign up. We will be raising rates for the conference later this month, uh, April 29th. The current rates will expire. So check out CannabisConference.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Get a feel for what's going on at the show in 2022. And make sure you register uh, ideally this month. Why not? Save yourself some money. And we will be sure to see you out in Las Vegas this summer. Thanks. Thanks.